Traveling overseas with small children certainly comes with its own set of challenges. You can't always push everyone in your family to slog through yet another castle or museum when they'd rather be out running around or taking a nap. Coming up in the hour ahead, the author of Jet With Kids explains why taking her young son with her to Italy provided an instant welcome wherever they went. They greeted my son and they wanted to hold him and you don't get that without kids. Two experts in frequent travel with kids share their road-tested advice for managing an overseas vacation with small children. The author of Family on the Loose explains why she makes family travel a priority. We take our kids traveling when they're very young, not so that they remember it, but we take them so that they can have this family experience and start to gain an appreciation that things are different in other cultures. Plus, we open the phones for listener reports on the benefits of off-season adventures. Make the world feel like home in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. By the age of 10, Anya Clower's son has already traveled to 32 countries and been all around the world. Ashley Steele started taking her kids on the road when they were just a few weeks old. How do they make packing, long flights, and adjusting to a multi-country itinerary work, even with a toddler in tow? Anya Clower has written Jet With Kids, and Ashley Steele and her husband Bill have co-authored Family on the Loose. They join us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to help other parents learn how to have guilt-free fun with the entire family, pretty much anywhere in the world. Anya and Ashley, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for Glad to be here. First of all, I'd like to get both of your just experience. Uh, Anya, tell me about your family and where you've traveled and, and, and what you do as a teacher. I have one son. He's 10 now. And before I was pregnant, people told me I would never travel once I had kids. So when I became pregnant, I interviewed flight attendants and pilots and asked them, what do people do well and what do people not do well? And I wrote the first book, uh, Jet With Kids, Taking the Fear Out of Flying With Your Kids. Um, I also discovered over the years that the people who will discourage you from taking your kids traveling actually don't usually travel themselves. So you have to find out their credentials first. My son has now been to five continents and 32 countries, including an around-the-world tour. 32 countries at age 10, way ahead of me. (laughs) And uh, Ashley, what about your story? We started traveling in the U.S. when the kids were just a few weeks old. And we had already traveled a lot before we had children and were really excited to take them abroad. And when they were 18 months and about four, we had an opportunity to go to Japan. And we were so excited about this, we started preparing months in advance, teaching a few words of Japanese or getting Japanese craft books. And when we got there, people teased us about how much prep, well, our friends here teased us about our prep work. But when we got there, it changed our experience. The kids could wave or if they could say hello, everybody was more friendly. And we sort of started this approach that if you prepare the kids, they'll have fun. A lot of people will say it's expensive uh, and the parents' experience takes a big hit. Uh, You know, if you're two adults that are going to Paris, you're going to see and experience a lot more without kids. How would you counter that? I mean, I always joke if, you know, if you got little kids and people say, well, where would you advise taking them? I say to take them to Grandma and Grandpa's on the way to the airport. And, <laughs> We've heard that. <laughs> and go over there and uh, have a good time as an adult. On the other hand, we took our kids to Europe every year from the time they were born. You know, if you can afford it and if you don't mind taking a hit on what you'll accomplish as adult sightseers, it's great family time. I would say, I mean, now sometimes I travel without the kids and it's kind of a loss. I think people maybe underestimate what kind of an entree into another culture their kids bring. You have to, you know, maybe use the bathroom in a new place or sit on a playground and talk to some other moms or people interact with you as a family in so a special way. it's actually a positive. Way. I think it's a positive. I think it's great. Anya? I think it's actually not a hit. I think it's the opposite. I think having kids opens doors that you normally would never have access so to. So what's an example? Well, we were, you know, in the kitchen of the Italian restaurant or the gelato shop. Whenever we walked in, they, you know, they greeted my son and they wanted to hold him. And you don't get that without kids. And they value, other countries tend to value kids a lot now, more. Now, that is so true because you, if, if you had just an adult couple stepping into a deli and if you have an adult couple with a couple of kids... Who's going to have the more interaction? I mean, you've got that obvious sort of icebreaker. Um, But do you find it varies from country to country? Some people say, oh, the Italians, they just love kids. Uh, Are some countries better for kids than others? 
most of the countries we've been to have really welcomed kids. So Thailand, uh, they they loved our son. Hong Kong, I mean, fantastic with our child. And mm-hmm. uh, but Europe, I don't know. We've just had great experiences. I think, especially the European culture. Well, most of the other countries value children as part of life, as as included in our everyday things. So they're not so excluded from. Yeah, you go to a, a Oktoberfest festival in the United States and kids are not allowed and dogs can't come in either because kids can't see beer being consumed and dogs have hairs, right? In Europe, the kids are there, the dogs are there, the grannies <laughs> are there. It's a multi-generational. It's a playground at the brew pub. That's it's perfect. Right. No, we've had absolutely positive experiences everywhere. We haven't found a country where people were not enthusiastic about our, having our children visit. I think people... It helps them interact with you also. They're interested in talking to you, but they don't have maybe a way to start. But when it comes to being parents with kids, and we're talking kids in that grade school age, do you have to choose restaurants, for instance, a little more selectively? What would be appropriate for having kids? I don't think we do. We probably choose based on budget first. Right. But there's there's rice and noodles in every country, every restaurant of every country in the world. So we've never found a place where there's not something fun to eat, maybe a uh, a place with very slow romantic service wouldn't be my first choice for small children. Anya, what's your experience with choosing a good restaurant when you're overseas? Yeah, we, we like to pick the pizzerias and the cafes outdoors. And, you know, we're with jet lag or up later. So mm-hmm. that fits in great in Spain where the little kids are playing in the piazza soccer. And, you know, my son can just join in. Those are some of my greatest memories. When our kids were in that six- or eight-year-old age, you go to the square after dinner. The adults are hanging out with their extra glass of wine, and the kids, it's 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night, and the kids are out kicking the soccer ball around in the square. That's great. Ashley, if somebody is saying, what's the best age to start taking your kids uh, abroad? I imagine you get that, that question I a lot. I get this question all the time, and people tell me they're waiting. I hear this a lot. They're waiting for the kids to remember it. And I've finally gotten a good answer to this, which is, you know, we read to our kids when they're little, not because we want them to remember the book, but because we want them to understand that reading is fun and we're together. And I think we take our kids traveling when they're very young, not so that they remember it. I mean, do you remember everything you did when you're 25? Probably no. (laughs) But we take them so that they can have this family experience and start to gain an appreciation that things are different in other cultures and we have this flexibility and this enthusiasm. So there's different values. You could take a kid when they're five just to let them know there are people who are different out there. You could take a kid when they're 15 and they could actually learn about, oh, there was World War II and this happened. Absolutely. Anya, what do you think about the proper age for taking kids abroad? Well, I started when my son was in utero. So, you know, I believe that the earlier on, the better because Honestly, I started traveling with him, selfish reasons for myself. I didn't want to mm-hmm. give up travel. But now that he's 10, I look back, he has adapted to new situations at mm-hmm. school, soccer team, whatever, without fear. I mean, he, he can mm-hmm. easily go into new situations. But the biggest thing is, I think, when he meets a child on the playground now who has broken English, he doesn't look at that child as they're dumb, which most Americans do. <laughs> And most adults do. And instead, he thinks that kid is smart because he's speaking a second language. He's also interesting because he comes from somewhere else and he's very brave. So he's probably the kid I want to hang out with. It's a whole different worldview from a five-year-old's perspective or an eight-year-old's perspective. We've experienced a very similar thing where our kids come home from a summer camp and they're excited about the the new participant from another country as opposed to intimidated. And they want to welcome them and bring them over and... So that, that enriches our life back home, too. So that openness to the world, they take it home and it becomes part of their way of living here in the United States. I absolutely think so. Ashley Steele has written Family on the Loose, and Anya Clowers is the author of Jet with Kids. There are guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves with pointers for making travels with children a highlight of your family life. You know, a big issue for us was the okayness of taking the kids out of school for three weeks in the spring. Uh, Anya, what is your your take on that? If somebody is uh, wrestling with the idea that they want to go on a family vacation and take the kids out of school? Well, it depends on who you speak with. And I'll tell you from our experience, when we decided to take our son around the world, you cannot believe how many people were horrified that we would take a seven-year-old child out of school for a year, not considering he would be with both parents 24-7 and have a curriculum of a world itinerary. Um, He learned division in Thailand with, you know, converting the currency. His classroom was learning about the tallest buildings in the world. And because we did an around-the-world tour, we actually were in Dubai, 
and in Kuala Lumpur uh, with the Twin Towers. So he actually has pictures of himself in front of the two tallest buildings in the world, which we sent to his teacher and said, would this qualify for covering this part of the curriculum? (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. So, I mean, other kids look at the big tower in Kuala Lumpur and your son stands there and and maybe goes up the elevator. That is a good example of hands-on education. So you had a, you had a structure, uh, a curriculum that you took from school for the year? Yeah. There's so many resources. Uh, my son called it world school instead mm-hmm. of homeschool because he said, why would hmm. you call it homeschool when we're not going to be at home? <laughs> That's a good. And he actually used technology. He was able to Skype in. We worked with an independent study program, but he was able to Skype into some workshops, mm-hmm. which speaks a lot about the future of education possibilities. But I think it really depends on who you talk to. There's so many amazing resources out there. Did the school uh, endorse you taking your son out? They have an independent study program, that which we took advantage of. Mm-hmm. And basically, it was homeschooling. And they let you, they let you do it okay? Yeah. And then from your point of view as a parent, when you brought your child home after a year, did he jump right back in or was he behind or was he ahead? He was actually two grades ahead in reading and a grade ahead in math. And that was surprising to me because I was very intimidated by the whole homeschool process. But what I found was it was just one child and I knew... We figured out what, what how he learns well and when he, he when he learns best in the day. And he set up a schedule. Okay, if you do this, you get to go to the playground. And he came back ahead of his class simply because as soon as he got it, we could move on. And life becomes one big story problem when you're a student abroad. I mean, arithmetic, well, you're going to do some money exchange and you're going to spend your crowns. And, uh, you know, language and geography, uh, history, uh, everything. Ashley, rather than talking about a whole year away, what about just a short vacation, three weeks or something like that? This is a good reason to take your kids when they're younger and not to wait too long because we found that as they get older, it becomes harder. We're still willing to take them out of school, and we found some teachers are supportive and some aren't. I think they learn more on the road than they probably do in a day in the classroom. Mm -hmm. But as they get older, you know, in high school now, there's so much Mm stress-induced that we ask our daughter, you know, is it okay to take a week off? And, and mm-hmm. she's able to make those decisions. We took our kids out of school for three or four weeks every spring for right through their grade school years and uh, worked with the teachers and made sure they were keeping up with things. But like you guys, I felt there was so much stimulation, so much learning over there. It was a net plus. Absolutely. And uh, frankly, I'd rather travel with the kids outside of peak season anyways and not take their summer away when, right. they, when they get home. They won't have summer. But we really thought that the travel was part of their educational year. You know, whether you got kids or not, preparation is a real important part of the travel experience. And when you're traveling with the family, there's a lot of stuff you can do in the beginning to sort of uh, sow the seeds of enthusiasm for this trip. Ashley, what are some ways that you'll get the kids caught up in the excitement of this upcoming trip, just like the mom and dad would be? Well, helping them understand where you're going to go can happen through so many different venues, through a little bit of language learning, some fiction books set on location. Kids always want to go where they're reading about nonfiction books at the library. Movies can get kids very excited about where they're going. And having them help make some decisions. You know, we can all look online now and say, well, we're going to go to this town and look on it. Helping them make some decisions. Absolutely. Uh, That is fundamental, isn't it? So the kids don't feel like everything's being put on them, but they actually own part of the itinerary. Absolutely. And then when you own the itinerary, you're also a little bit more inherently responsible for having a good day. If you decided to come here, then you want it to be fun. Do you think kids even have that feeling? Absolutely. They're proud of this. They're proud of it. So this is my activity today. The whole family's doing what I want to do. And they're going to have fun whether they like it or not. Yes, and I'm going to make it fun. All right. Just ahead, there's more with Ashley and Anya. And your calls to 877-333-7425. Later in the hour, we'll check in with listener reports for off-season travel ideas. We're always ready for a new adventure here on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking travel with kids, and we're joined by Anya Clowers and Ashley Steele. Anya's got a website, jetwithkids.com, and Ashley has a website, too, familyontheloose.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Barbara's emailed us from Chicago. And Barbara asks, uh, what advice would you give parents who are traveling to Europe with kids who have a wide age gap? My son's 14, my daughter is 6. We want to spend three weeks in France next summer and are wondering how to plan our trips so that it'll appeal to both kids. Ashley, Anya, any ideas on age gap in kids? 
balancing each day so that there are activities for each kid. And there will be things that the 14-year-old could maybe help plan that the three-year-old might particularly enjoy. Delegate to the 14-year-old to plan activities for the six-year-old. Absolutely. And I I think that you might even plan some days where you split up so that one parent sticks with one child and one with the other, and both can choose what they really want to do. And it is nice when you've got a kid that's old enough to babysit to actually be open to babysitting in Europe as you would be at home. I I like that idea of actually letting the kids be in a safe environment uh, on their own, having their own adventure. We used to give our kids... uh, Actually, when they were getting on our nerves, we would give them a little money and say, you go get dinner on your own. We'll see you in, <laughs> in two hours. And it was, they'd they look, no, you're not going to do that to us. You know, we sure are. And now they had to, you know, uh, actually dole out their money carefully and try to figure out the menu and deal with the language barrier. And, and they would learn from that experience. It's a lot of fun. Anya, any thoughts on, on uh, different uh, age gaps for kids? Yeah, I think what Ashley said is great because I think sometimes we think we always have to be together 24-7 as a group, as a family. And there's something about splitting up for the day and reporting back in. It makes it really exciting. You tell me, mm. you know, and, and giving each group their time to explore. So the mom and the dad take one of the, the older kid or the younger kid, and then you have a different dynamic, and mm-hmm. you can mix that up. I think that's a great idea. Ross is on the phone in Los Angeles. Ross, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick. How are you today? Good. Do you have some thoughts or some advice to share about traveling with kids? We just got back, actually, from uh, three weeks traveling in Spain and Portugal with my two kids who are now in their mid-20s. And we've been traveling with them since they were very little. And um, I thought it was a tremendous learning experience because as we've taken them to Europe and, and other places domestically over the years, we've, uh, my wife and I have kind of had to revise their level of responsibility and involvement over time. So I think just a big piece of advice really is to get them more involved in everything from you know, choosing the seats on the airplane. To, to which hotel we may actually choose to stay in. And then an easy one is at the restaurant. Kind of allow them to order the food for the family and eat family style. And it actually is even a little less stressful for me, who's used to always being the one making all the decisions mm. historically. That concept of more and more responsibility, if you're fortunate enough to take your kids to Europe on several trips, each time upping the bar as far as responsibility, that's very exciting and important from a parenting point of view. Anya, what about more responsibility for for your kids when you travel? Yeah, I think from the start, if you involve the kids and have them make decisions, they are excited about it, even as something as simple as what to order in the menu. Mm -hmm. And then it's not being told to do something. It's actually Mm -hmm. having involvement, and and we all want to be involved. I remember giving our kids money belts and the responsibility of having their own money and keeping track of it in their money belt. And uh, that really put the ball in their court, and they arose to the responsibility, and they, they mastered it. The other piece now that we're seeing is with social media. A lot of kids, as they get older, you know, we're looking for restaurants in Barcelona, for example. And, you know, my daughter had already a list of two or three top choices from her friends. I love it. And then, like Ashley was saying, you follow their advice and they take you to their choice of a restaurant. And they're more inclined to like the restaurant because they dragged you there. (laughs) Yeah. That's so important. Ross, thanks for your call. I love that idea of of more responsibility. And you've seen it, Ross, because your kids are in their 20s now. My kids are the same way. I mean, I remember when we put Andy on the train from Verona to go to Venice on his own without parents for his first time when when he was uh, middle school age or something like that. And it was a thrill for him just to get on the train without mom and dad. And now I just heard from him, he's he's rented a apartment in Prague and he's actually making money on it with Airbnb. And <laughs> This guy is so comfortable with the world. I just think it's just exciting to see kids get more and more comfortable making the world their playground and and celebrating the fact that there's so much out there that we can weave into our lives. I think the other thing I heard from that story is that he's still traveling with your kids when they're in their 20s. And, uh, you know, there's not that many things that kids still want to do with their parents in their 20s, maybe. But if you have this travel ethic in your family, Mm -hmm. maybe you have more family time left as they get older. The one thing that I did find is If it's a total whiteboard and it's a blank slate, it's actually a little bit difficult for them. But at least saying it's kind of in your back pocket doing some advanced planning. So you have maybe three, four, five choices. And then allowing them to pick from that menu uh, sometimes can be a nice balance of, you know, you pick one thing a day, um, but it's not like you're planning the entire schedule. Good advice, Ross. Thanks for your call. Thanks for having me on. It's interesting, Ashley and Anya, how uh, a lot of times when you have teenage kids, uh, you might not get the uh, 
positive encouragement as you're traveling that they're really loving every minute of this, but they soak it up. And years later, you realize, oh, they were paying attention. Oh, that did have an impact. And oh, they did, at least in retrospect, enjoy the experience. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking travel with kids. We're joined by Anya Clowers and Ashley Steele. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Colby's on the line in Duval, Washington. Colby, thanks for your call. Hello? Hello, Colby. Hi. Hey, we're talking about kids, and you are one. How old are you? I'm 12 years old. Wow. And have you traveled around Europe? Yes. Where did you go? I've traveled to Spain, England, Italy, Hungary, Austria, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic. Whoa. And, like, what are you, seventh grade or something like that? Yes. All right. And and did you have fun on the trips, or did did you kind of just get dragged there by your mom and dad? had fun because something that helps me to, to make these trips more fun is having something new, like a new book or a new game. Okay, so that's that would be advice you'd give other parents when they're going to take their kids. Mm-hmm. Also, I think they should make their kids do some research for the trip to figure out things they might want to do. So how did that help you when you were going to all those interesting places? Um, example, like... When I was in Rome, seeing the Colosseum. So you already knew something about the Colosseum and that made you really want to go there and climb around on it? Mm-hmm. So what did you imagine when you're standing on top of the Colosseum looking out at that arena? I was imagining about gladiators having battles. Yeah. Do you know the word arena? Do you know what that means? No. Sand. Do you know why sand? Do you know why they put sand on the floor? No. To soak up all the blood. Wow. That's cool. Wow. Yeah, write that one down in your journal. And when I was in Austria, I went bicycling in Hallstatt. I love Hallstatt. When you get back from a trip like that, does it make school any different? Does it make history more interesting? Yes. You've actually been to the Colosseum? Yes. That's neat. Going to go on another trip sometime? Yes, Croatia. Well, will you call us up after your trip to Croatia and let us know how it goes? Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. Happy travels. Bye. Wow, that's great. Colby. I love that idea of a 12-year-old who, who, know, who has those images now. Absolutely. You get a little more confidence when you've been traveling around the world to call into a radio show. Absolutely. I was it, impressed. That's cool. Yeah. John's on the line in Trenton, New Jersey. John, hello. How you doing, Rick? Good. You sound older than that last guest. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, too much older. <laughs> Do you have any advice for traveling with kids? Yeah, what we did is we recently traveled to London and Paris, and we were very nervous about our kids you know, acting up while we were there. My daughter was six years old. My son was just turned three. What we did was we went to a dollar store here in the U.S., and we bought a whole bag full of goodies. Probably spent about $40 worth of stuff. Mm-hmm. So over the course of the 10 days, whenever they're getting a little antsy, we gave them a toy, and they were excited to play with it. And it worked. So worked this is this is really a practical issue. Is there's a lot of downtime? You're stuck on an airplane. You're stuck in traffic. You're sitting on a train. Whatever. You're waiting for a slow dinner in France, uh, and the kids need something to occupy them with. Uh, Anya, what do you find is a good way to help kids be not bored? Uh, well, we discovered giving my son the camera or an iPhone or something and have him take pictures of what he's seen. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's very interesting, their perspective on things, um, mm-hmm. what height they're at and what they think is important. Uh, we were in Morocco. He was taking pictures of construction equipment. So, you know, it's just what is important to the child. And it really gives some insight into, yeah. you know, what their priorities are, but also um, what they're feeling at the moment and have them make faces. We did a lot of encouraging, oh, you're you're sad or you're mad or you're bored, you know, take a picture and scrunch up your face and, uh. you know, and um, the toys can go either way. I mean, they can backfire um, if they're overwhelmed. I think kids do very well with surprise and when they have something to look forward to, but mostly when they know what to expect mm-hmm. and you can set little limits for them or um, have them earn things. I think that we found that works great. Ashley, how about you? What are some tricks to keep a child uh, engaged in something while you're on a long drive? Well, I'm going to go for a museum because we like to use scavenger hunts. And sometimes we need to know what's in the museum, but really we can do them now without knowing what's in the museum. You might say, you know, something so simple as list the alphabet down and find something that begins with every letter Mm -hmm. um, or find things from 10 different eras or sketch one picture from a different perspective or 
uh, find dogs or how many cats can you find in and, this room? And those are also tools uh, in disguise to help kids learn about different eras or different perspectives and so on. So that can be done thoughtfully. Education in there. <laughs> education in there. That's, that's good. And, and these days, you know, there's so much uh, electronic help. I mean, you know, you can... There's a limit to how much screen time you want to inject into the experience, but still, if you got a movie and the kids are on an airplane, that's a pretty nice thing. Yep. John, thanks for your tips. Thank you. We're learning the fine points of globetrotting with kids right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Anya Clowers writes Jet with Kids. And Ashley Steele has written Family on the Loose, the art of traveling with kids. Her website is familyontheloose.com. So there's a lot of things you can buy before your trip to help the family experience be better. Are there any products you're enthusiastic about that families should consider buying before their trip? Definitely. I think you have to consider who's going to be holding the child because even if a child's old enough to walk, you're usually walking a lot more, a lot longer distance, and usually with jet lag after very long days. So bringing along products that will basically hold your child for you, a good ergonomically correct child carrier so the parent doesn't have back pain, Um, strollers that can deal with the cobblestone streets, good shoes for the kids because they're going to be walking a lot. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of things to consider. I think you have to think about the child and if there's anything special for them. But the most important thing is logistically, can you get around comfortably? Uh, What about nap time? I think nap time can be a resource. It's a time when you have a, I mean, of course, schedules change on the road, but you have a general sense that your child is going to be asleep. So having a stroller where they can sleep in the stroller, and then maybe they can sleep through a particular museum or they sleep during the long walk you really wanted to make by the river, that's your time to do what you want. I think another thing about the stroller is it's not just a stroller. It is someplace that's very private for them to have non-stimulating time. And then also they can eat in it. You can change diapers in it. They can sleep in it. They can watch a video in it. And it's kind of their little sanctuary where they can close off, but it also protects from the elements. So don't go with a small, light stroller. Go with a serious stroller because that's a big resource. When and you're now they're coming out with these fantastic strollers. I mean, they even have mm-hmm. one that folds up and you can sling over your shoulder. What about journaling? I, I always really <laughs> thought it was important to have the kids to journal. For me, those are the, the best uh, discipline for the kids to be observing and collecting, and it'll be a, a souvenir of a lifetime. So I think the journal is a great resource, but the big mistake I think people make, me too, is you try to you know detail every little thing you did on the day. Right. And that is just, it's just torture to write. It's torture to read. But give your kids some ideas for things that will help them reflect on their trip. Maybe two interesting things you saw today uh-huh. or your favorite painting you saw in the museum, or what you hated that you ate today, or yeah. <laughs> you know, a map of the hotel room or a, of the view from your window. Those Perfect. are the things that those are going to help the, you remember your kid the when memories. they're young, too. Yeah, we ordered pepperoni for pizza, and we got peppers on it. I wanted some yeah, spicy that's what, sausage. There's that'll help them remember the trip and you to remember your child at that I, age. I remember on my very first trip, I'd collected postcards, and on the back of each postcard, I wrote whatever was going on that time, and it's my treasured souvenir at this point. Uh, what about just taking time, slowing down, Ashley? This goes back to the idea that now I kind of miss traveling with my kids if they're not with me because they push us to slow down a little. And before I was coming today, I asked my kids, what was the best thing we ever did, you know? And I expected, I guess sillily, I expected something like the Eiffel Tower. And I got, remember that tiny wall in Venice that we had to pass around for the hotel? Yeah. And there was a tapas bar that we got stuck in. We didn't expect it. And they paid by the toothpick. And it was really loud and only local. And the cats. Remember that cat? That's what they remember. Anya, when you think about, you know, making time for the little things, uh, what's an example of how that can enrich the experience? Yeah, we've really started to put our son in charge of navigation. And that was out of necessity because he was complaining about walking a long distance. And we were in Reykjavik. And I gave him a map of Reykjavik. And I said, find our way back to our hotel. Hmm. And all of a sudden, he was no longer bored. He was in control. He was in charge. He told us we need to go that way. And... We also did that in Venice. We let them get lost. I think anyone, everyone Every, should get lost in Venice. Lost in Venice. <laughs> Very good experience. <laughs> I'd love to have little kids right now in Venice and just get lost. <laughs> this has been so much fun. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we've been speaking with Anya Clowers. Her website is jetwithkids.com, and Ashley Steele, and her website's familyontheloose.com. And both of you have just... Uh, made me a little nostalgic for the times that our kids were little. And also, I'm just so happy we can share this with other people who might be dreaming about travel but are a little ambivalent or reluctant or nervous about taking their kids on the road. If we could just close, I'd like each of you to share just a great parenting moment that you can think back with your child or children in Europe. 
Uh, what is one time where you just felt gratified with all the messing around you had to do to get way into that different time zone? This is good family time. This is good parenting. Anya. Yeah. When we came back from Thailand, we were driving on the freeway in California, and I had put the different cities of the world on my phone. My son had never looked at that before. And he said to me, oh, it's raining today in Bangkok. And he was quiet for a little bit. And then he said, oh, that probably feels so good to those construction workers. (laughs) And it was like the choir sang. Like I thought, you know what? My child realizes we had gone right after the red shirt uprising and people were like, oh, was it scary in Thailand? And, you know, it made me realize my son sees past the news and he sees that there are people on the other side of the world who experience the same things as he does. And he remembers that humidity and how hot it was there and what a relief that rain must have felt to them. I have one more thing is that my son's best friend lives in Finland and we met him in Thailand when they were both on holiday. And they Skype every week together and that's how the, the Finnish boy learned how to speak English. And traveling with kids has made me realize that you're shaping their future. You're shaping who the person they're going to be and how they're going to respond to the events of the world. And it's not about taking a family holiday. It really is shaping who, how they react to even local life and world events. And to be a world citizen is, I think, the best gift you can give a child. You are raising a child with a global perspective. Ashley. Ours also relates to Thailand. And my kids, we had gone to Thailand, and they understand now the value of learning a little bit of language. And they'd learn the numbers from 1 to 10. And we were in a village, and no one spoke any English. And they were able to, the man was saying, you know, when are you going to come back? And they were saying in five years. And and the kids were able to go back and forth with this man going four years, three years, two years. And with just a few, I mean, their total vocabulary is maybe 20 or 30 words. They were able to have this wonderful exchange. And I, they remember it, and they loved it, and uh, love makes it. them want to come home and learn more languages. Ashley Steele and Anya Clowers, thank you so much. This has been a fun discussion of uh, how we can weave our parenting in with our world travels. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I love you so dearly. I love you so clearly. I'll wake you up in the morning so early just to tell you I got the wandering blues. I got the wandering blues. And I'm going to quit these rambling ways one of these days soon. We're checking in next with listeners like you at 877-333-7425 for reports on your favorite off-season travel destinations. Let's hear where you like to go. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're with you every week on Travel with Rick Steves to share our enthusiasm for getting to know the world on its own terms. And it's one of my favorite parts of the show when we get a few moments now and then to check in with listeners at 877-333-RICK. Let's hear about where you're thinking of going or tell us where you've been lately. We'll start with Jennifer on the line from Pittsburgh. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Rick. Thanks very much for taking my call. Yeah. Um, A few years ago, my husband uh, turned 40, and we were thinking of some places for him to go, for us to go to celebrate. And his birthday is in December, so we were thinking about the Caribbean. And then we got uh, an email offer from Icelandic Air to be able to go to Iceland for a package deal that was really uh, very inexpensive. Hmm. And we, we thought, you know, what the heck, let's do it. You know, not very many people go to Iceland in December, um, but one of the one of the things that they had uh, tempted us with was a tour of hiking on a glacier and then going out to see the Northern Lights. So we would get out into the uh, countryside and and be able to uh, to see the Northern Lights, and that's always been on our bucket list. Yeah. So we decided to take the chance, and we went. And I will say that we fell in love with traveling off season on that trip hmm. because. There were very few people around. Um, we really got a lot of special attention. 
there were some times when we would be the only people in a restaurant. One night in particular, we were at a restaurant. There were three different uh, couples there, and the chef was sending out extra courses for us and making extra things for us. And at one point, the owner came out, pops down a, uh, a bottle of schnapps, and started telling us stories about his time when he spent in America. And uh, so we were sharing uh, stories and liquor, and, and he even gave us uh, the, that uh, rotten shark thing that they, oh, they do Oh, you did? You tried the rotten <sighs> shark? Now, I've, I've heard they, they actually, it's not just a touristy thing, they actually do that. They do it in small portions with their fire water. What, what was your experience with it? Yeah, it had to be in small portions because it was terrible. <laughs> but you, it was, you had it with the schnapps? It was just, I mean, I, I understand that it's one of those things that you have to do when you're right. there. And he did tell us that, uh, he said, you know, you have to try this. We don't really like it, but, but <laughs> you go ahead and try it. Now, did you get a but sense we they didn't... were just putting it on the tourists and they're all standing back and watching <laughs> you guys do something foolish? Or did they actually eat that stuff when you're not there? They, I, I don't really know. They ate it with us, but uh, yeah. I think it's uh, it's kind of their... Uh, Every culture has a has a fermented food, and that's our fermented food. I think it's one so, of those but, foods designed to remind the young people of the suffering of their grandparents, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you'll eat this, too, and too. you'll remember. So you had your rotten shark. Now, you were talked into going to Iceland in the off-season in the winter, and they give you a deal too good to refuse. My hunch is it just it's dark and cold and, and drizzly, and everybody's inside. But you actually liked it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it is very cold there in the winter, and it's and it's dark. But the, the culture is accustomed to the darkness, so people are out and about all the time. Huh. And, and then also, because everything is heated geothermally, yeah. we were never, we were cold outside, but you would go uh, into the stores, and they would ha- literally have their doors wide open because it was so warm. And energy in, is in almost free, I guess, for them. They just tap it right out yeah. of the earth, huh? Yep, yep. Now, now, and so they, what, did it um, get dark early? Was it dark at 3 o'clock or something like that? Yeah, Sunrise was about 10.30 in the morning, uh-huh. and then uh, sunset was about 2.33 in the afternoon. Okay. Now, you so, ate, yeah, it, was, it sounds like you ate well. I was just there a couple months ago, and I was impressed by the food. It was uh, sort of a rustic, gourmet, locally grown, uh, hearty food, and uh, done with a, a real local pride. Uh, we were really surprised by how good the food was. We were expecting very bland food, mm-hmm. and it turned out to be very flavorful, lots of herbs, uh, really good sauces. The fish was cooked very well. Everywhere we ate, we, we, had, a, we had a great meal, so we were very pleasantly surprised by that. Now, what were the northern lights like? Because a lot of people fantasize about seeing the northern lights. You've actually seen them. Yeah, it was breathtaking. For a while there, we didn't think we were going to see them, and then they just kind of popped up. And, and when they say that they dance across the sky, it, it really does look like that. Is this like uh, dancing with, green laser beams, or, or what does it look like? Like wisps of smoke. So it, okay. it's like green smoke that are, hmm. is across the sky. And I guess sometimes you can get red and, and yellow, but we only saw green. But hmm. it was kind of like looking at a fire, but the but the smoke being green and trailing up into the sky and going across the So sky. it's kind of like sitting back and watching a fireworks display? Yeah, it was huh. beautiful. And what about hiking on the glacier? Did you actually do that? Yeah, that was a lot of fun, too. The tour companies, and I think they all do this, uh, they'll supply you with the crampons and the little ice picks that you have and, and your poles that you're going to be uh, hiking on the glacier. Mm-hmm. It wasn't terribly cold, but it was really interesting, and we had to make sure that we stayed within certain boundaries because there were uh, crevices that you could fall yeah. into, and it, it wasn't you know it wasn't for the faint of heart. Did they take you there in these super jeeps? Yeah. Yeah, those super jeeps are something, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. This is like like jeeps that can go anywhere, and they let the air out of the tire so they can get better traction and go softer over the rocks and the ice, and they can get you right up onto the glacier and then turn you loose, and you've got your own guide, and you're going to do some hiking. Yeah, and it was, well, we only great. had a couple of hours to do it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because, of the, because of the light. But it was, right. uh, well, Jennifer, did your husband really uh, enjoy his 40th birthday then? Yeah, very much. Nice idea. You swapped the sunny Caribbean for... Iceland in the dead of winter, and you're glad you did. Absolutely. All right. Call us back when you have another trip. (laughs) Okay, we will. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Deb in Albany, New York, sends us an email with her suggestions about visiting Iceland. Deb writes, Iceland can be good to visit with older kids. The capital has great museums, there are tours galore, and kids who like yogurt will love Skyr. That's the Icelandic yogurt, S-K-Y-R. If you go for a few days before Lent begins, you can eat cream puffs called boladagur. And at Christmas, there's a choice of 13 Yule lads for the kids to enjoy. 
It's so dark that if you go out of season, you can get the kids to sleep in well beyond 9 a.m. Thanks, Deb, for your tips for enjoying Iceland in the off-season. Our listeners to Travel with Rick Steves are a great resource for travel tips and ideas. We're checking in right now with listener travel reports at 877-333-7425. And we're always glad to get your emails. From time to time, we might share some of them on the air. You can write us at radio at ricksteves.com. William's on the line in Miami, Florida. William, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Uh, I always find the best time to travel is off-season. You know, for me particularly, it's in March. Uh-huh. I love to go to Europe in March. It's cold, sure, and uh, sometimes the weather's kind of iffy, but uh, it's the cheapest time to travel, yeah. and the crowds are way down. And do you find that the locals are a little less in gear to make money off of the tourist and just a little more in gear to go about their normal lives? Oh, sure. It's so much sure, more relaxed but, off season, I find. It's way more relaxed, and I mean, there's a few things that you know, there's a few things that aren't open, but well, you know, way more than makes up for it. Uh, mm-hmm. The crowds being down, the heat of summer is just. I, I mean, I've done it both ways. Well, especially but, in the Mediterranean, it's so darn hot in the summer these days that if you can just bundle up and go off season, you're going to have a much more comfortable time. Oh yeah, like last year, I, I started off in Nuremberg, then I went to Munich, and then from there I went to Salzburg and Vienna, which was, you know, for it took about, you know, it's about um, eleven days. Mm-hmm. Eleven days, you spend, you know, a couple of days in each, you know, each uh, town. Mm-hmm. And it was great, okay? I had some bad weather in Salzburg. I just went to the city museum that day. Yeah, I, you, I mostly go for the museums anyway, you know? Well, you always want to have your bad weather card, because if the weather turns bad on, you can head indoors. I think it's important to dress smartly so you can be outside even when the weather's not very nice. And also, it gets dark early, so you want to make a point to get your day started um, while it's uh, a little earlier so you have a full... Uh, stretch of daylight to have your fun in different cities. I'm an early riser anyway, and I'm, you know, I'm in, usually in by dark. That works out beautifully for me. This year I'm going to do the uh, Amsterdam-Brussels-and-Bruges trip, which, you know, okay, early March, that's going to be kind of sketchy, because I find Amsterdam to be one of the coldest places on Earth. Well, it can be bitter. On a, in the off-season, it can be cold and bitter. William, what were the uh, cities you went on your last uh, off-season trip? You, you said uh, I started off in Nuremberg, took the train down to Munich, spent a couple of days there, took a train to Salzburg, and then ended up in Vienna and flew out of Vienna. Wow, great cities. And you know, when I think about Vienna, a lot of people go to Vienna in the summer, and they're frustrated because the boys' choir is not there, the Spanish writing school is not going on, the opera's on vacation. All of the high culture in Vienna is up and running in the off-season from September through April. It was great. I even took a side trip to Bratislava, which wasn't that great. <laughs> mm-hmm. We had an hour on the, on the Danube River. Did you take it by boat or by train? I took it by train. Okay. I took the train from Vienna, you know, because it was Monday, the museums were closed, so I you know, figured, what the hell, I'll take it, you know. Do you know there's a good trivia question, the only two capitals in Europe that can be seen one to the other? You can see a little bit of Vienna from Bratislava when you stand oh, on I the didn't top. know that. And uh, they're so close together. And Bratislava, well, it's the capital of Slovakia. It's uh, sort of uh, reinvigorating itself lately, and it's a lot better than it used to be. And it's a very reasonable side trip from Vienna. It's easy to do in one day. Yeah, it was. It was very, it was very quick. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize they were that close, but they certainly are. And just, you know, go in there to see the old town. It's worth, you know, it's yeah. worth half a day. But now what you did was you just focused on one area, Nuremberg, Munich, Salzburg, Vienna. All those are within a couple hours train of each other. What a, what a very reasonable itinerary. You, had, you encountered no serious crowds in March, and you just had to uh, bundle up and deal with the weather and probably enjoyed a relaxed and uh, uh, easygoing look at towns that would be hot and crowded in the summer. It was great. The trains were not crowded, you know, and uh, like I say, it's a, it's a heck of a lot cheaper. Because when I research my hotel, sometimes, you know, you, know, you look in places like TripAdvisor, to, you know, and you see people complaining, if you don't get down early, you know, you, you can't get a table at the breakfast room and stuff like that. I never have a problem, because <laughs> like I say, I'm, you know, hotels you can, are half, you know, half full, and uh, it's wonderful. Life goes a lot easier if you can just avoid the summer school break and, and so on. So, and uh, besides, I live in Miami. It's hot here all the time, and it's, <laughs> it's the welcome break. You know, I get a little cold. I mean, you know, I've driven all the United States. I've hung, hung around Maine and stuff like that, so I know what it's cold, you know, all right. cold about. Good ideas, William. Thanks so much, and uh, good luck on your next off-season trip. Thank you very much. Okay, Have bye a now. good one, Rick. Thanks. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we love to take a few minutes out of all of our interviews and actually get feedback from our travelers, get reports from the road. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Peggy's on the phone from Philadelphia. Peggy, thanks for your call. Hi. 
I love New Zealand. It's far away, but I still love it. <laughs> wow, that's far from Pennsylvania. That's like the other half, other side of the world, almost exactly. I bet. Well, my husband happens to be a Kiwi. Kiwis are good travelers. Oh yes, they have something called OA. The kids between usually um, university and the real world, as you put it, do the OA, the overseas adventure, and that usually that can last as long as a year. Now, isn't that interesting? It's sort of ingrained in their culture, isn't it? Why is that? Well, I think I know, having spent a fair amount of time in New Zealand by this time, that they feel far away from things. Mm-hmm. Even though you go on these planes, honestly, it's near, it's is a two-day voyage because crossing the International Day Line, you wind up being there the next day after. But the actual airtime, I figured, is about 21 hours because I go to the South Island. My husband said, don't say South Island, Peggy. He said, because New Zealanders say the North Island and New Zealanders say the South Island. <laughs> okay, let's get that right. Yeah, got to get that right. Okay, so now you, you've spent 30 years living with this Kiwi, and every year you go to New Zealand to the South uh, Island? More, and I've lived there with my children because my husband's an academic, so we took uh, a sabbatical there uh, in 1990 to 1991. So my kids had that experience because they needed to really get to know their relatives there. Well, that's important, yeah. Yeah. Now, now if somebody's dreaming about going to New Zealand, some people might say, well, you can get the same sort of natural wonder in British Columbia or something like that, and it's just uh, much closer. Why would somebody fly all the way to New Zealand for the charms of New Zealand? What would you see okay, what, what and do? Okay, now, what you said was very apt. It's a very outdoorsy country. That's why I go there. Mm-hmm. And I go to this, the, the South Island, mm-hmm. and I go to a town named Dunedin. Have you ever heard of that town? No. Oh, wow. Dunedin. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, I'm a little scared to advertise this because oh. it's a very nice town. I'll keep it a secret, just between you and me. Tell us about <laughs> Dunedin. <laughs> well, well, fortunately, it, it's a large town, as in about 235,000 people. For New Zealand, that's a large town. Mm-hmm. And it has a wonderful university, which is where this University of Otago is, where my husband went to school. And I go there because we chose that in 1990-91 to take David's sabbatical because he could work at the university. He's in medicine, so they they had something for him to do there. And it was my eye-opener, because I'd never lived in New Zealand before. I'd only visited New Zealand, uh, I think, once before. Okay, Peggy, but I'm going all the way down there. I don't know your relatives. I'm going to Dunedin. <laughs> what am I going to do in Dunedin oh, to make it really okay, a great okay, now I have to watch the clock because I could talk forever about this. Yeah. All right, let's get the, um, do you know about albatross fur seals, penguins, um, yellow-eyed penguins? This is the land of wildlife. Penguins? I think penguins so in, in New Zealand? East. South Island than the North Island, okay. and, and if New Zealanders are listening to me, I'll, you'll probably get a lot of complaints about that. Because it's closer to the Antarctic, mm-hmm. it's colder. Okay. So Dunedin, yeah. we can, it can be a base for uh, enjoying all of the wildlife that you'd find in the South Island. Well, yeah, there's plenty there, and I'll tell you the name of some beaches, even though maybe two cars parked is one too many for my husband, but... So I told them, my friends in New Zealand, that they have to expect more people. <laughs> okay, good. Well, well, first of all, tell me three kinds of animals I'm going to see uh, when I go to Dunedin that are very interesting. Okay, you have to go out to the peninsula, right. and at the end of the peninsula is the only land-based albatross colony in the world. Now that's something, the only land-based albatross colony. Okay, what else would I see? And it is something to see. Mm-hmm. Of course, you have to go guided because, of course, it's sort of a quarant. It's an area that's it's, protected. Yeah, sure. Right. Okay. So there, you have to see them mm-hmm. through lenses, but they're right in front of you. But you're not allowed to walk amongst them, is what I'm saying. Okay. You know how huge albatrosses are. Yeah. The chicks. The chicks are like the size of a Volkswagen. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> they're pretty so you, you got to be careful. Okay. What's okay, another? What's then, another? One? I will tell you beaches where you can go, not with tourists, and you can see. Um, penguins. You go down to some place called Sandfly Bay. Uh-huh. Sandfly Bay. Uh-huh. It's just gorgeous. Well, after this program, there may be more people, but when we've gone, we've had the whole place to ourselves. Nice. There, you have to stay away. It was a very large seal that was molting, and they don't like visitors, so you sort of keep your distance. He was whatting? Uh, what was he doing? Molting means uh, penguins molt too. They come and they shed their fur or their outer oh, skin. Okay. Yeah. It's like um, sort of a hibernation time for them. Mm-hmm. They're sort of incapacitated. They, right. they like to slow down. Okay. And 
So you got some. There's some good wildlife. There's some beautiful nature, and then the people. You've you've been married to your husband for thirty years. I'm charmed by just the fun way New Zealanders talk because they have these colorful little phrases. Share with me two or three phrases your husband uses that are kind of unique. Okay. Well, my Kiwi. husband um, has been in this country for over thirty-five years now, so he doesn't use these phrases anymore. Okay. But when you say, "Oh, it's golden," oh, that's golden. That means it's really great. Okay, that's a good one. And another one. It's golden. Oh, 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 a friend of mine said, yes, my patch. Oh, it's your patch, Peggy. She said, don't tell us about that one because it's your patch. You don't want to advertise it. That's a pretty New Zealand. Oh, that's her. his, like, his special little hideaway, his patch? Yeah, it's your little secret. Gotcha. Okay. Patch. All right, like, well, well, sure. sh- share one patch just between you and me. <laughs> well, okay. Where I stay is like paradise. I stay in a place called St. Clair, I don't rent a car until my husband comes, so I use public transportation, and it's at the beach. It's right on the beach. St. Clair is the place where they have an incredible heated saltwater pool. Mm -hmm. That's why I stay there, because I swim every day, and it overlooks all the surfers. It's like on the cliffs. It's a 19th century pool, which obviously has been modernized. But it is in a setting that is unbelievable. And you're overlooking the whole surf culture. You sure are. That's St. Clair on the South Island. St. Clair. And I go there early in the morning because I like to see the sun come up over lawyer's head and I do my little yoga exercises watching the early morning surfers and the early morning swimmers, the All pre-work right. swimmers, go there at 7. That sounds golden. It is golden. All right. There are a couple of hotels at the beach. They built a modern one, a new one, but it's a very low-key. You can't find this in the States because ah. we go to other places, too, in the world, and this is special. Sounds unique. Hey, Peggy, we got to run. Thanks for your call. You're so welcome. Okay, happy travels. You too. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Rick has recorded walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find a link to Rick's audio tours in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Germany, Austria and Switzerland, Berlin, Prague and Vienna, and the heart of Belgium and Holland. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.